Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. We are delighted to welcome back to the show Jacob Cook for this episode. He is the co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies. In our conversation today with Jacob, we dive into the evolving e-commerce and consumer trends in China for 2024. We also analyze the performance and tactics of leading e-commerce giants like Douyin, Pinduoduo, Taobao, and Tmall. Our discussion also touches on the influence of changing consumption patterns and consumer confidence on the market dynamics. We offer a comprehensive overview of China's digital commerce landscape today. Enjoy. The biggest news, of course, is that PD's market cap surpassed Alibaba's. That's a pretty big deal. They don't have the GMB numbers that Alibaba does, but in terms of reshaping China's e-commerce landscape with social commerce and aggressive discounting, PDD is really sort of jumping out ahead. You know, their group buying feature, they leverage is really the power of social networks, incentivizing users to encourage their contacts to make purchases in order to obtain reduced prices. And for brands, that's really powerful because you look at your customer acquisition costs usually being your biggest expense. When you acquire that one customer and they bring a bunch of their contacts over, well, obviously it reduces that quite a bit, which allows the brands to really bring down their price points and maybe even hold a little bit of margin. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jake, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Todd. Okay, so you and I are both dealing with what it seems like half the population of Earth are dealing with. We're just trying to overcome colds. We've got coughs. We've got raspy voices. We're going to sound sexy and we're going to talk about consumer trends. But thanks for fighting through. I'm going to be fighting through. And uh, apologies to everybody listening for the occasional cough once in a while from you and I. Jake, you were on Bloomberg recently. You shared your analysis on the news that ByteDance's revenue was up 30% to $110 billion. And you also argued that Douyin's e-commerce is probably the main driver of much of that growth. Can you please expand on that? Yeah, well, they posted $200 billion U.S. for GMV in 2022, and that was up 80% from the year prior. You know, for 2023, I think we're expecting it closer to about the $350 billion mark. You know, for comparison, Alibaba is doing about $1.1 trillion um, and holding relatively steady. So only in a few years, you know, Douyin is moving close to a third of Alibaba's GMV, and they've got 750 million users. Jake, do you mind explaining the Douyin model a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So if you look at, you know, what we would call traditional e-commerce or maybe sort of algorithmic search based, what really happens there is customers, they go to the to the traditional platforms with maybe a pre-intended purchasing intent. So, hey, they're looking for a pair of pants. I'm searching for pants and I get a thousand different pant listings, different prices, you know, different materials, really everything to do with pants. Probably, you know, I could get, you know, maybe even 50,000 search results for something like that. 
we talk about Douyin social commerce, it's really preference-based, where individual products and looks are presented to consumers by algorithms. So it mimics more of that going to the mall and shopping, right? So if you look at that easy-to-view short video and live streaming formats, people who maybe clump together in a certain style or things like that will watch these shows, be influenced and make those purchases. They might not have logged into that show with a specific intent. They knew they were going to go shop like a trip to the mall, but didn't know what they were going to buy. They see nice things, they see good prices, and they end up making that purchase. And that really is um, is what we would call the Dillion social commerce model. How would you say, how well would you say Westerners understand ByteDance? I'm not sure that they do very well. You know, it was reported, I think, by the information that TikTok only generates 20% of ByteDance's revenue. And when you consider that TikTok is actually has more users outside of China than inside of China, um, you know, you look at guys like Scott Galloway, you know, and, and they accuse ByteDance of falsifying numbers and things like that. And, you know, it just really couldn't be fail further from the truth. You know, Galloway and these others really fail to realize how massive Douyin has become as an advertising and e-commerce player in China. You know, not only do we operate on these platforms, we operate big logistics hubs and we know exactly where we're shipping our packages and exactly which platforms those purchases were coming from. And there's absolutely no reason at all to doubt any of the numbers coming out of Douyin. In fact, we wouldn't be surprised if they were even bigger than what's being announced. You know, TikTok you know, as a loss leader right now, it's e-commerce is growing. And I think anybody that ignores it, quite frankly, um, is going to be left behind very, very quickly. Yes. Ignore at your own peril. And we're going to be talking a lot about TikTok shop, uh, especially when we get into more Southeast Asia stuff coming up later in the month. So stay tuned for that. One last question about Douyin. For the brands that WPIC is helping manage uh, and grow in China, what kind of growth are they able to see on Douyin? Yeah, most of the brands are definitely in the triple digits um, in terms of growth. Um, you know, it's also taking a lot of those new ad dollars that we're putting into these platforms. You know, when you talk about those traditional e-commerce, it takes a while to build yourself up to the top of those algorithms. But actually, if you look at these new social commerce platforms, it's a lot easier because it's just really a matter of money to get yourselves on these shows and, and pay out commissions and things like that. So getting to bigger audiences faster, um, especially with new brands, it, it's been become a really, really great tool for us. I think that, you know, overall, you know, we're expecting, you know, similar, you know, content types at Alibaba too, as well. And certainly ByteDance isn't the only player in this space, but in general, you know, when you look at consumers, especially female consumers, it's really dominating in terms of how they're shopping today. Let's switch gears. Let's go talk about PDD, Pingdodo. Can you share your thoughts on the Pingdodo marketplace? And then uh, I'm going to preface now. I do want to talk a little bit about the discount platform Timu, but let's start with your thoughts on Pingdodo. Well, I think the biggest news, of course, is that PD's market cap surpassed Alibaba's. You know, and that's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, they they don't have the GMB numbers that Alibaba does, but in terms of you know becoming a, a re or reshaping the China's e-commerce landscape with social commerce and aggressive discounting, PDD is really sort of jumping out ahead. You know, their group buying feature they leverages really the power of social networks, incentivizing users to uh, you know encourage their contacts to make purchases in order to obtain, you know, reduced prices. And for brands, that's really powerful because you look at, you know, acquisition costs being usually your customer acquisition costs, usually being, um, you know, your biggest expense when you acquire that one customer and they bring a bunch of their contacts over. Well, obviously it reduces that quite a bit, which allows the brands to really bring down their price points and maybe even hold a little bit of margin. 
Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, their PDD's holdings revenues were up 94% in the last quarter, um, which is really another incredible number. You know, their rise is also really related to the prevalence of discounting. And they've been, like I said, you know, they've been innovative with that group buying and in, in being able to lower the costs for the brand so that they can pass those savings on to consumers. Um, also, you know, very successful at moving commodity oriented functional products, you know, kind of your daily, uh, your fast moving consumer goods and your, your daily necessities. So, you know, they've engineered that consumer manufacturer consumer model, you know, that connects suppliers to consumers, gets rid of a lot of the middlemen. And this is just one more of these mechanisms that they have to keep those prices as low as possible. And they've done this really well. And they put a really big moat around this that I think it's going to be hard for anybody to sort of undercut or, or discount even further in terms of what they're doing. You know, and, you know, with the economic pressures on people with the last two years, you know, it, it's expanded you sort of beyond that target demographic, which we always thought was that sort of third, fourth, fifth tier city. And now they're very prevalent in the first and second tier as well. So congratulations to what they've done. It's obviously a very, very good story of 2023. What about Taobao? Like, it, it, from what I remember, this was the place for the discount products, right? And now is Taobao still a thing? Are they relevant? Is this, are they still up there? Is this just shots fired, but they still own it? Like, what does this do for Taobao? As part of Alibaba's reporting strategy, we're not getting a lot of the individual platform numbers going forward, but people in the industry are absolutely uh, made that connection. And that's where it used to be. And so what, you know, like I said, what PDD has sort of done is Taobao was what we called C to C, right? And it was, you know, kind of grassroots level, cheap products to people and and what have you. But what I think PDD has done, you know, it still wasn't super cheap for manufacturers to advertise or for uh, uh, sellers to advertise on Taobao. But again, with that group buying function and what they've done there, that's made it a lot cheaper to advertise, bringing more customers and the connecting of the actual merchants with PDD and what they've done there to go directly to consumers and of just a much wider variety of products. You know, what they did in agriculture was amazing. So I think that they've really eaten into Taobao from everything that we've seen. Um, so we're, we're going to have to see, does, does Taobao start to, you know, they have that massive user base over at Alibaba's. You can never discount that. Do they start to adapt some of the same potential strategies over at Taobao to defend that market share? Yeah, we're probably going to see that in 2024, a little bit more. Um, and we'll have to see what that does overall. But yeah, you're right. That's exactly where the, um, where the market share has come from for PDD. Let's talk a little bit about Timu. Timu is, is, is interesting because... I've got the app. I'm using it over here in North America. I have seen the ads start to funnel through on my Instagram or through my Facebook. I have actually even seen in some Facebook groups, some some local rant and rave, just local residents out here in, in the middle of, of, of the Rocky Mountains of Canada actually asking, hey, anybody know anything? Can you rant or rave about Timu? Tell me a little bit more about it, things like that. So it is penetrating. It is, it is getting noticed. It is out here. Tell us more about Timu. Yeah. Well, in terms of Canada, it's a little bit different because shipping costs are a lot higher than they are into the U.S. Um, there's some agreements that the U.S. has in terms of inbound shipping, but then almost make it subsidized a little bit by the U.S. government. Um, you know, in terms of what Timu is filling, keeping prices down in a high inflationary environment, they're doing a very good job of that. I don't expect those subsidies on shipping inbound to continue forever, but you know, it, it's impressive what they've been able to do. Um, you know, I think it, it still has held a, 
the record for 2023 in terms of being the number one downloaded app inside the US. It's good. You know, if, in their latest statements, I think it was just a little bit over 10% of their overall revenue, though. Um, so we're not really sure how much of the market cap is driven um, by Timu? Probably not a lot. We know that, you know, AliExpress and these other apps that actually do dominate Timu in, in other Asian countries, for example, hasn't been a big contributor to Alibaba's market cap as well. So yeah, it's interesting for sure. You know, it, it was a natural progression, you know, as they'd made relationships with all these manufacturers, it was great to give them really an outlet to be able to sell their products abroad too as well usually at a little bit higher margin for them. So it's very interesting for sure, but it is um, probably not a heck of a large proportion of their overall market cap just compared to what PDD is actually doing inside of China. That leaves us needing to talk about Alibaba and where does all of this leave Alibaba in your opinion? It's still a dominant player. You know, for brand strategies, we definitely continue to advise that Tmall should remain the cornerstone, really the tip of the pyramid of a brand e-commerce strategy in China. But the brand should be activating on multiple marketplaces and social commerce. You know, we've really built that infrastructure of WPIC so that once your product's here, once your customer support has changed, once you're making all of these product pages and taking all of these uh, shots and, and making dynamic content, that it actually makes a lot of sense to share and disseminate that content over lots of platforms. You know, Tmall is going to bring you a lot of market credibility, but there's just a ton now really kind of operating in what could be, you know, including the cross-border platforms, like seven or eight really sort of significant e-commerce platforms now in China, which is way different from you know, four years ago where it was just Tmall and JD. So yeah, I mean, Tmall is great. Um, you know, the data analytics, the platform itself is by far the most advanced. So it's great for brands to also get that two-way information and learn about their consumers and what they want and what have you. And, and I think it's just, it, it's going to be always the, where you want to start. Like at GMV numbers, are still higher on Alibaba than they are anywhere else. Um, you know, with over a trillion dollars in in GMV just in China, I mean, th- those are really insane numbers and, and that's not going away. Um, but, you know, like I said, there's some innovation going on in this market right now and, you know, it needs to be taken seriously. And I think all of this really depends, again, on your price points, how you compete. Platform strategy, of course, is, is definitely part of any go-to-market strategy. But, you know, uh, Alibaba still is number one, lots of innovation going on around it. And it's now really turning into a very interesting and dynamic. And that's also very good for consumers, you know, because it's going to reduce ad prices, it's going to put more ad inventory out there. And at the end of the day, probably lower customer acquisition costs in 2024 a little bit. Let's switch gears a little bit again. Any high level takeaways looking at 2024 about how consumption norms might be changing? Well, we've seen obviously the post-COVID consumption changing. I'm not expecting any of those trends to make radically different pivots in 2024. You know, consumers are being influenced by social. A lot of these, you know, we've talked about this on the show quite a few times in terms of health and wellness, hobbies, outdoor travel experiences. These are all going to be big things in 2024 as well. I think that brands too are just really upping their game in terms of having a really strong digital presence in China, you know, activating across all these channels and really not being so slow to adopt them. You know, it's been a year since we've come out of COVID now. Brands have started to come back in terms of moving their people back here, visiting their offices, getting an understanding of how the environment has really changed. So we're expecting some pretty significant investments in digital in 2024. What about consumer confidence and consumption trends uh, looking at uh, the rest of the year as we kick off 2024? 
Yeah, consumer spending grew in 2023, but I think not to the extent that many people hope for. I think if what unfortunately people are going to be looking at is the year at a whole. But if you look at H2 compared to H1, consumption, especially online, uh, did grow quite healthy. I mean, we're still talking about no real reductions in the massive GMV numbers at Tmall, but you're talking 90% on PDD. You're talking, you know, 75, 80% increases on Doyen. I mean, that's a strong, strong consumer. I mean, look at large durables, like we said auto, these types of things are down. But, you know, when we talk about categories where people are looking to upgrade their health and lifestyle, they're booming, um, absolutely booming. And that's going to continue into 2024. Awesome. Jake, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. Very welcome. Always a pleasure. For everybody listening audio only, don't forget to head over and check out our YouTube for YouTube shorts and more content and information over there. And for those of you watching us on YouTube, please don't forget that the audio only version is available everywhere that you get your podcasts. So for myself and everybody behind the negotiation and for Jake joining us once again, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.